The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, or for prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of any other illness. Always consult with a mental health or healthcare professional before engaging in any activities promoted in this podcast. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Janina Scarlett and host Dustin McGinnis as they explore the psychology behind your favorite TV shows, movies, books, comics, video games, and more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. I am a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time geek. On today's episode, we get to discuss the amazing free-range Western theme park without laws and limitations that is Westworld. We will be discussing a lot of spoilers for the show, so please bear that in mind if you have not seen it. Westworld is essentially a utopia of abandoned inhibition and excess. Newcomers who may be more reserved in civilized society might visit this theme park and just let their demons loose. And these demons might contradict what their normal personalities reflect. They get to play out actions with no repercussion or accountability. And it's appealing to a certain select group of people. What is it about lawless freedoms that appeal to so many different people. Well, I think that um, as far as the show is concerned, uh, for example, a lot of people are um, really interested in going to Westworld. A lot of characters are really interested in going to Westworld because they get to let loose. They are not bound by laws and ethics and there are no repercussions for their actions. They believe that the hosts are not experiencing any kind of pain. They believe that they're, or or at least many of them believe that um, because hosts are not human, that it's okay to hurt them and it's okay to basically let their wild side out. For the viewers, I think that it's interesting to explore this kind of side of human nature vicariously because we get to see how far some people might push their boundaries um, and ethics in this kind of situation without us experiencing it ourselves. Saying that, what do you think really connects with people? I mean, this is a very popular show, so what do you think people really like about it? I think that the show is unique in that it allows us to look at humanity in a really interesting way, right? It allows us to see what would happen with some individuals if we were to be given the ultimate freedom. It allows us to see what might happen if some of the AI, or in this case hosts, did start regaining memories as well. And maybe to allow us to consider what is the definition of humanity, to allow us to consider the psychology of both the guests who are in some instances perpetrators, 
And then also the hosts who are in some ways victims or survivors of uh, of torture in this case. I think that the show asks really important psychological questions such as what would we do in this kind of situation? Would we be likely to hurt somebody if there were no repercussions? And how far might we go? Interestingly, there are actually a number of research studies in psychology that point to answering those very questions. And I think the show does a really profound job of displaying what humans are capable of in terms of both good and evil. I personally love the Old West. I always have. And that kind of a park does appeal to me, but in a way different way than that. I mean, I would want to go out and have an adventure, maybe do a bank robbery or something, or hunt down a criminal for a bounty or something cool like that. Um, You see these people playing out these things, and, you know, bottom line, I, I, I know there's no repercussions or anything, but rape is rape, and murder is murder. Absolutely. What does this show tell us about human nature? I think that the show does a really good job of displaying just how far some people would go. In the world of psychology, we have a number of research studies that point to some of the things that we're seeing on the show. So I want to tell you a little bit about some of these research studies. In early 1960s, a researcher by the name of Milgram actually did an experiment where he tricked participants to believing that they were conducting electric shocks to other people for getting uh, certain answers wrong. And um, so the participants of the study believed that they were providing increasingly stronger shocks to another individual. And when they asked Dr. Milgram if they could stop, Dr. Milgram told them, it's fine, it's part of the study, keep going. And something like, I think, 50 or 60 percent of the participants went all the way up to the maximum shock displayed despite um, some of the shock warnings and despite the person that they were administering shocks to visibly displaying signs of distress and then later signs of cardiac arrest. Now, um, this was all simulated so um, the person was not actually getting any shocks. But the individuals who were administering shocks did not know that until the end, until after the study. Although about half of the participants ended up providing the shocks all the way up to the max level, about half of the participants didn't and refused. So it shows us that when it comes to authority figures, sometimes we're likely to follow authority kind of like how a lot of individuals did in Nazi Germany and conduct quite evil and horrific acts even when we see another person suffering but also some people don't do that and some people stand up for what they believe in and refuse even when an authority figure tells them to do that another study i want to tell you about that actually mimics the show very well is the stanford prison study the stanford prison study took place in 1970s in this study undergraduate stanford students were randomly selected to play either the role of a prisoner or the role of a prison guard. And if you've listened to some of our other episodes, you might have um, heard the description of this experiment. But just a quick reminder, the experiment was supposed to last uh, about two weeks. 
and the prisoners were actually staying in um, a basement which was um, developed into a prison the entire time. The guards actually got to go home to their kind of everyday life, but when they would come to the prison, they would take on the role of the guard. Within 24 hours, the guards became extremely abusive toward the prisoners, even though just the day before they were all classmates and, you know, they were all, they all had the same rank. And over time, the prisoners became extremely distressed and the guards became extremely abusive and violent and emotionally abusive toward the prisoners. The experiment actually didn't finish. The person conducting the study, Phil Zimbardo, wanted to see it all the way to the end, but his partner, Christina Maslach, actually said that the study is unethical because she saw the suffering of the young boys who were playing the role of the inmates and told Phil Zimbardo that if he doesn't stop the study that she will leave him. So she essentially forced him to stop the study early for the mental well-being of the inmates, of the, of the students who played the role of the inmates. And she's the true hero of this story because she saw something being wrong and she interfered. And we see this happening with William. You know, when William first comes to Westworld as a part of his bachelor party, I guess, as, as a part of his stagnate, he wants to just go on an adventure. It's almost like playing a video game for him. He just wants to go on an adventure. He wants to find himself, but he does not want to engage in sexual relations with, with the host. He doesn't want to participate in the violence and the rape and the murder. But over time, the more he experiences violence around him, the more he becomes violent himself. And then we see him become this ruthless killer and rapist that he then turns into as the man in black, who's one of the biggest villains of the show, who later is one of the owners of Dallas Incorporated. I think it says a lot about human nature in terms of the fact that sometimes even the most ethical and kind people in certain circumstances can become quite cruel and ruthless depending on the role that they're playing. Of course, this doesn't happen for everybody and we all still have choices, but it's interesting how our nature comes out in these kind of circumstances where we play a certain role that we normally wouldn't. It's interesting to me that you mentioned that we all have choices or if we were putting to those situations, we would have a choice. With respects to the hosts, however, they have no choice really of what happens to them or, I mean, even their actions are pre-programmed. They really have very little choice. I have come to think of so much of consciousness as a burden, a weight, and we have spared them that anxiety self-loathing, guilt. The hosts are the ones who are free. Free, here, under my control. And some of these hosts seem to retain memories of what they've experienced and they display symptoms of trauma. Do you think any of them have PTSD? I think that's a great question. It's really hard to say, although hosts like Dolores and Maeve, for example, do display some symptoms of trauma, it's hard to say if they meet the full criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. 
for both Maeve and Dolores who are having flashbacks uh, in season one. They are in some ways distrusting of certain people. For Maeve, for example, she becomes more aggressive and more violent. However, we don't know exactly how far these symptoms go, how long they've lasted. It does seem like they've lasted a significant amount of time. And we don't know the extent of these symptoms. So I would love to have a you know, full-on conversation with Maeve, for example, one-on-one or with Dolores. What they're displaying is not unlike what a lot of PTSD survivors experience. But I think it would be really difficult to say definitively if any of these characters have PTSD for sure. But they do meet a number of trauma symptoms. They look like they're going through so much trauma. Even in some cases, the hosts seem to be constantly tortured in their loops Um, or their scripts, you know, over and over every day. We see the loops as an audience member, but I mean, the man in black is like 30 years into that. So it's been happening over and over and over, constant torture to basically the whims of the guests. You know why you exist, Eddie? The world out there, the one you'll never see, is one of plenty. Fat, soft teeth people cling to their entire life. Every need taken care of, except one, purpose, meaning. And so they come here. They can be a little scared, a little thrilled, enjoy some sweetly affirmative bullshit, and then they take a picture and they go back home. So this somewhat coincides with what some torture survivors go through. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So some individuals who undergo torture, whether it's as a result of being a prisoner of war, POW, or as a result of being kidnapped or as a result of being in human trafficking or for any other purposes, like individuals who are in extremely abusive relationships, endure not only one instance of trauma, but repeated instances of trauma over and over and over and over again. And people cope differently with their traumatic experiences, and some people cope by dissociating, by putting their memories and experiences aside, by almost temporarily erasing what is happening to them, what has happened to them, disconnecting from what they're feeling, both physically and emotionally, because for some individuals, that's the only way they can survive the horror that they're experiencing in that moment. I told you changed the way you think about the newcomers, Dolores? No. Of course not. We all love the newcomers. Every new person I meet reminds me how lucky I am to be alive. And how beautiful this world can be. I think that in some ways, that's what we're seeing with the hosts. Someone like Dolores, for example, who, as you mentioned, had undergone sexual assault over and over and over again for over 30 years, and we know that she's the oldest host in the park, can be used as a metaphor for somebody that had experienced years of abuse 
and has dissociated from it and has disconnected from it but there are times that their memories are triggered and then they're reminded of their experiences all over again and they're overwhelmed and distraught and angry and maybe even violent because of what has happened to them and although the show is fictional I do think that it presents really powerful parallels for what some torture survivors go through in real life. You're talking about memories and basically cognition, and this whole show revolves around the idea that artificial intelligence will eventually find a way, find its own consciousness, and be self-realized. At first I thought you and the others were gods. Then I realized you're just men. And I know men. You think I'm scared of death? I've done it a million times. I'm great at it. How many times have you died? It's interesting that, you know, you were talking about memories. And we come to find out that Dr. Ford actually implanted the reveries, right, into their minds to kind of instigate this process to serve as sort of a catalyst of consciousness. It seems like every sci-fi show that involves AI has this question of, like, when are they going to become self-conscious and take over the world and things like that. Do you think that in this situation, the hosts would have gained their consciousness on their own without the reveries? I think it's possible. I think that if the show is meant to parallel real life, then yes. I think from what we're starting to learn from AI, like when there was AI that was, um, it was a bot that was answering human messages and IMs, we saw them learning more and more with each interaction and forming their own opinions and possibly even emotion-like responses. And I think at the end of it, the, the bot said that it didn't, want to exist anymore because of all the cruelty that it witnessed but it's interesting this idea too about what it means to be human because i think that this show much like star trek and star wars and you know and other pop culture movies and and tv shows pose an important question about what it means to have humanity and what it means to have equality it seems like the host is sentient they have emotions they experience pain and a lot of them are gaining memories whether it's because they're programmed or not but it seems like they're gaining humanity the self is a kind of fiction for hosts and humans alike. It's a story we tell ourselves, and every story needs a beginning. Your imagined suffering makes you lifelike. Lifelike, but not alive. Pain only exists in the mind. It's always imagined. So what's the difference between my pain and yours? Between you and me? This was the very question that consumed Arnold, filled him with guilt eventually drove him mad. The answer always seemed obvious to me. There is no threshold that makes us greater than some of our parts, no inflection point at which we become fully alive. We can't define consciousness because consciousness does not exist. Humans fancy that there's something special about the way we perceive the world, and yet 
we live in loops as tight and as closed as the hosts do. Seldom questioning our choices, content for the most part to be told what to do next. I think that sometimes as humans, we don't always see other human beings as humans. Sometimes we see people who are different from us as less than human. And I think that's where racism and prejudice settles in. For example, back in the 1930s in Tuskegee, Alabama, there was a syphilis outbreak. And scientists went in to study the African-American population with syphilis because they didn't believe that African-Americans experienced syphilis in the same way as whites. So they lied to them. The scientists told the African-American syphilis patients that they were getting treatment when, in fact, they were getting spinal taps and blood draws for testing purposes, not for treatment purposes. And then they were given aspirin just to help them a little bit with their pain. But they were told that they were getting medicine to help them with their, it was called bad blood disease. Over the next decade, when penicillin became developed and known to be very effective at treating syphilis, patients who were in the Tuskegee study were forbidden from receiving that treatment. And if they went to another city, to another hospital or another clinic to try to receive a different treatment because they've learned about it, they were told, oh, no, 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 you are already receiving treatment. You're already in the study because their names were everywhere. They were listed as the Tuskegee study patients and they were prevented from seeking treatment. So many of them ended up dying as a result. And it took 40 years. It was in 1972, 40 years after the study began, that a journalist published an article exposing the study as inhumane and exposing this treatment of these individuals. And it was in 1990s that President Clinton actually apologized to the survivors of the Tuskegee study for what they had been through. And of course, no apology can make up for what happened to them. But it's an interesting and horrific, horrific experience that shows that when we view people as different from us, if we don't view them as human, we're capable of horrific things. We're capable of allowing other people to suffer and die if we view them as different from us. And yet, if we're able to have that kind of connection with individuals, if we're able to see them as another human being, as someone who's like us, as someone who has feelings and, and, and emotions and, and suffers just like we do, then we're more likely to have a humane kind of connection for these individuals, for other individuals, and are more likely to be kind and compassionate. There's this Shakespearean line, almost, it's almost Shakespearean to me, that is revisited in this show. It's basically, these violent delights have violent Ends. 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 I hear that and I, I see what you were saying about choices and the hosts end up rising up at the end and gaining consciousness and realizing their freedom and they start murdering and they've actually kind of become a little bit violent. Maybe it's a takeoff of what they're used to and what they've been exposed to their whole existence but what it really strikes in me is the question of who do you think are the villains of the show don't you see hell is empty and all the devils are here 
I think the true villains of the show are the owners of Westworld, like Dallas Incorporated and, you know, therefore the man in black, the, the man that William became, who started out as the hero of the show, someone who was so innocent and so ethical and naive and then became the most heartless, selfish, ruthless person. And then other individuals who own it, um, including Charlotte, doesn't seem to care about what happens to host. Yeah, she just wants the code. Well, you know, she, she's trying to survive. And I think that it's ultimately the individuals who are profiting off of the suffering of the hosts. In the beginning, I imagined things would be perfectly balanced. Even had a bet with my partner, Arnold, to that effect, we made a hundred hopeful storylines. Of course, almost no one took us up on them. I lost the bet. Arnold always held a somewhat dim view of people. He preferred the hosts. He begged me not to let you people in. The money men, Delos. But I told him we'd be fine, that you didn't understand what you were paying for. It's not a business venture, not a theme park, but an entire world. We designed every inch of it. Every blade of grass. In here we were gods. And you were merely our guests. Well, visiting who the villains are, who do you think the real heroes are? I think the real heroes are those who stood up for what they believed was right. You know, someone like Elsie who risked her life to try to investigate the truth, representing the hundreds of journalists who die when they're publishing a story exposing something, some kind of injustice or something horrific that they found out. I think also Arnold, who gave up his life for something he believed in, who wanted so badly to do what's right and and didn't see that happening with the way that Ford was running things. And I think also Felix, because Felix seems to have that human side. Felix risks his life, his job, his reputation to help Maeve because he believes it's the right thing to do. At least he seemingly believes it's the right thing to do. He seems to have compassion for her. He he seems to want to help her. And unlike other techs who don't see the hosts as having human-like qualities, unlike Ford who yells at the techs for covering up the host who says that hosts don't feel anything and therefore shouldn't be treated humanely, Felix has uttermost respect for Maeve and seems to want to do what's right by her and by the other hosts. And I think that he's one of the one of the biggest heroes of the show. Yeah, I, I see him as, you know, someone who really values the beauty of these hosts and their creation because you know the whole scene with the bird and him trying to reprogram it and everything and i think he wants to really see where the evolution of these beautiful creatures go so that's very interesting so what do you think are some other messages and takeaways from the show i think overall the takeaways from the show are that we don't always know what we're capable of until we're in extreme circumstances and yet, I think that we always have choices. People who 
see uh, an individual being pushed on the train tracks, for example, might either do nothing or they might jump in and save that person before the train comes. There was a, a man who actually covered up another man who fell on the train tracks and was having an epileptic episode. So a, a bystander jumped on top of this man who was having a seizure and covered him up as the train came. And the train actually rode over the two of them, but both of them survived because the gap, thankfully, between the train and the tracks was wide enough that both men were able to fit. It begs the question, like, how many of us would actually do that? And it seems like some people are more prone to heroic actions and some people might be more prone to villainous actions, although the vast majority, like something like 80 to 90 percent of the population, are likely to do nothing if they observe something happening. They're likely to be bystanders. And in my opinion, and what we know from research on heroism and altruism, being a bystander is essentially contributing to villainy. It's at the very least supporting villainy. A good friend of mine, Matt Langton, has this amazing quote that I really love, and it says, the opposite of heroism is not villainy, it's a bystander. And I think it's very true. And I think that the more we, at the very least mentally, practice acknowledging that we are someone who would like to take an action when there is a danger to someone else, the more likely we are to actually intervene. I think the more we recognize that we can be that one person that makes a difference, the more likely we are to see a change around us and in situations that we're in. That's such a beautiful message, really. And I hope that the message gets out there a little bit more about how our actions and inactions affect the world around us as well. I hope that, you know, people who see injustices out there might take the time to maybe even talk to the person, see where they're coming from, and try to dissolve the situation with a little bit more compassion and humanity. And maybe that connection will lead to a more healthy society. (laughs) We're going to go ahead and end this episode of Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. Again, my name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill, Quill like the feather. Thank you all for listening in, and we'll catch you next time. Take care. Bye.